Hi, Leslie. How are you doing? Uh, Ian, hi. How are you? Thanks for taking time out to talk about your new book, which will be released tomorrow now, won't it? So, uh, Who Killed John Lennon? The Lies, Loves and Deaths of the Greatest Rock Star. So I took my... I've got three children. Uh, I say children, they're all grown up now. I took them in December 2018 to the O2 to see Paul McCartney in the Freshen Up tour. Yeah. the Freshen Up tour. And it was the night that Paul brought on Ronnie Wood from the Stones and also Ringo Starr. And, you know, they, they kind of jammed together. Photograph this with your eyes because you will never see this again in your lifetime. This is half the Beatles back yes. on stage 50 years after they first formed. This is unbelievable. And, and we were full of it. All You know, it's a long car journey home from the O2 because the traffic is always terrible getting out of that car park. Yeah. And we were just talking all things Beatles. And it astonished me, actually, how little, because they love Beatles music, they, all three of my kids are singers, they play piano, they play guitar. My, my son is a trained performing arts student, you know, they've graduated this summer and so on. They know a lot about Beatles music, and they can sing them, they can play them, the songs. But they demonstrated negligible knowledge of the Beatles as individuals. Uh-huh. And we were chatting about John Lennon, and I said... What you have to understand is that for my generation, John Lennon is our JFK. And my son said, what's an airport got to do with it? (laughs) And at that point, the bulb went on. And I thought, I've got to write this book because, yes, there are a lot of books about John and the Beatles, you know, about more, more books about them than any other artist in history. But no book I didn't feel was speaking to their generation and explaining who he was. And in this year, obviously that was 2018, but looking forward to 2020, a year in which the Beatles would have existed for 50 years, yeah. a, a year in which they were celebrating in Hamburg, 60 years of, of the Beatles in Hamburg, or they would have been had, had coronavirus not killed off all the celebrations. John would have been dead 40 years, and he would have turned 80. And it, the number sequence fascinated me. It just drew me in. I thought, I have to write a book about John Lennon. And it's always that process with me. There's always a point of no return. I, I turn down lots of books, actually. Most books don't grab me, you know, and they have to grab you. Yeah. To spend the best part of two years of your life with a subject, you've got to really either adore them, I think. There'd be no use hating them, would it? No. Or not appreciating their music. You've got to really relate to that person and want to find out what really made them tick and that's what happened um, and that's what always happens so it's a good yardstick i kind of know my gut very well and my gut feeling was you've got to write a book about john Lennon. you sit down and make a list first of all how many people do i know still alive who might have known him who could talk to me about him and their experiences of him and of course when somebody's heading for the age of 80, had they lived. There aren't going to be that many contemporaries left. So I drew up a list of of those I could approach. And I also was very fortunate. I had worked on a book with Cynthia Lennon, John's first wife, back in the 80s, when I was a journalist on Fleet Street. She wanted to do a memoir sort of telling the whole story. She'd done one memoir. She wrote two, actually. But this was after her first one and before her second one. And she wanted to do the sort of no-holds-barred because she was 
obviously disappointed. Well, she didn't want to divorce John anyway. You know, no. she was shocked by the fact that he went off with Yoko. Um, she had a lot of bitterness in her, and her first memoir had been a sort of knee-jerk reaction. She wanted to make a book that was much more measured, that her son Julian could understand, their son Julian yeah. could understand, yeah. you know, who John really was, because John and Julian hadn't had a great relationship for all the reasons. No. And and what her part in that story had been. And we were working on that book together. Um, for legal reasons, it couldn't proceed. And I had retained, because I'm a hoarder, I'm a, just a first-class hoarder, I keep everything. <laughs> and I'd retained all the tapes from those interview sessions when I was working on that, that, that book with her. And so I had all those interviews, never been used. I'd used a couple of bits and pieces in newspaper articles down the years, but nothing comprehensive, nothing at all. And so I had all that. And when I, I transcribed and read all that stuff, and it was heartbreaking, you know, with a bit more maturity, because I was obviously only young myself, very young in the 80s. Yeah. And I didn't comprehend a lot of what she was telling me. I hadn't been in a, a sort of long-term committed relationship. I had obviously not been married or not had children. So most of what she'd said to me had just been sort of facts and figures. But with my own maturity and many more years under my own belt and three children and a divorce under my own belt, I could relate to her much better. Yes. And I could understand where she was coming from. And it it's heart-rending stuff, you know. So I kept that. There was also my friend David Stock, who's a sort of Mr. Music business. You know, he knows everyone in the music business. They call him the Zelig of Rock. He's um he's a uh, a board member at Lipper. You know, Paul McCartney's yes, former yes, school Liverpool. in his old school in Liverpool. Yeah. And when he heard that I was thinking about doing this book, he turned up that he'd had in his pile of stuff for donkey's years, an interview on tape that he'd done with Pete Shotton, who was John Lennon's best friend from the age of six. They were in school together, choir together, cubs together, wow. you know, the early bands together. And David had done it years ago for one of the Beatles magazines, and he'd never used it for some reason. It had just got left in the pile and languishing. He said, do you reckon you could make use of this? Yeah. <laughs> I had to borrow a cassette player. I think I got one out of my mum's loft, went and got it and brought it home and sat and listened to this cassette both sides and transcribed it all. And it was astonishing stuff, you know, really enlightening yes. things that, that Pete was saying about John. And of course, John's relationship with Pete stayed the same for, for the entire lifetime. They Obviously, when John moved to New York, they had less face-to-face exposure, but they kept in touch. And Pete did see John shortly before he died. And Yoko said that, you know, they, they, that John talked about him every day and he never forgot him. He talked about Stuart Sutcliffe every day and yes. never forgot him. But I think there was a huge amount of guilt there over Stuart's death. And, you know, there is the big question mark hanging over that. Did, did John play any part in that? Because he did, um, he did the poor old Stuart up a couple of times and um, there was a suggestion at one point by Stuart Sutcliffe's sister Pauline that he might have suffered some sort of brain hemorrhage because John had kicked him in the head but you know actually the Beatles and all the other bands that 
that have residencies in Hamburg, for want of a better word, they all got beaten up all the time. You know, that, that was just, you know, drunken sailors and uh, yes, yeah. just that, that sort of very edgy nightlife that was that world. They were always on the run from somebody who was trying to beat them up. I doubt very much whether it was anything to do with John. But so anyway, there, there was, I had this Cynthia interview. I had this Pete Shorten interview. I managed through my friend Tom McGuinness, very close friendship going with Klaus Bormann. Uh, who, you know, met the Beatles in Hamburg in yeah. 1960, and he and Astrid Kasha became the Beatles' very good friends, became almost parents to them, actually, and looked after them and and, and got them places to, to have a wash and have the proper sleep and get proper food inside them because they were living like sort of feral foxes in yeah. Hamburg. It was disgraceful the way they were living when they were first there. And they took them under their wing and... They used to go to Astrid's house for a bath and all this kind of stuff, you know, and they used to take them on outings and things, and they really looked after them. Yes. And Klaus was very reluctant to talk to me, but Tom McGuinness persuaded him. He said, what can I tell you? This is Klaus. What, what on earth can I tell you about John Lennon that hasn't been said before in so many books and so many articles, and most of which have got it wrong? I said, that's what you can tell me who John really was, that they haven't captured those people. Yeah. And it was very moving stuff, actually, because Klaus is a very old man, and he was looking back on his own life as much as on John's. So there I had my foundation, and then it was just a question of building on and, and just guessing people who'd been in that scene uh, to add their own stories and their own experiences of John. And then it was a question after that of me delving into John's psychology, which I did with the help of various uh, psychotherapists, psychiatrists, because, you know, there weren't diagnoses for things in those days. In those days. No, no. Post-war, we were not that enlightened, and there wasn't the money, and um, there weren't yet the medical developments. And people do like to diagnose John with all kinds of uh, conditions, don't they? But, you know, it's only speculation. Nobody can know for sure, because he's not here. No, no, no. You know, there were there were clear signs that he's lived a very dysfunctional, damaged life. And I have found this in common with virtually all rock stars I've ever encountered and interviewed. They all started life with some dysfunction or other, some void to fill. And of course, there is the angst that drives their art, which is why they write and play in the first place because they're trying to solve their own issues yes. and John's void, John's personal void was deeper than everyone's and I've interviewed probably every rock star that most people can name these days and virtually all of them, I can't even think of anyone who didn't say this that John Lennon had been their genesis, he had been the reason why they picked up a guitar and played why they wrote songs, why they tried to emulate the Beatles yeah. And of course, the Beatles had been inspired in turn by Elvis Presley and Carl Perkins and all those great artists of the 50s and even earlier, sort of into the 40s and 30s, from certainly in John's case, from his, his mother Julia's record collection. Yes. So, you know, everyone is inspired in turn. But, but John seemed to have, because of technology and because of dissemination and broadcasting, and, you know, the Beatles we know had a much wider reach than any previous artist which was part of the reason they became so huge in the world. Mm -hmm. But John, John seemed to have more of a, an influence 
and an effect on the musicians who came after him than virtually any other artist. So I needed to know why. Did you uh, interview Pete Best at all? And Rogue Best? Well, I did speak to Rogue, actually. I mean, Pete, I had interviewed in the past. Yeah. There's been an awful lot said by all of that family. I've included Mona in the book, their mother. Even that story uh, of Mona is a book in itself. Do you not agree with, with how she, you know, put all the money on the horse? And it, it's a fantastic story, isn't it? It is a fantastic story. Interestingly, um, <laughs> I had included all that detail, especially the bet that won her the money to buy the house. Yeah. All of that was in my original manuscript. And the my esteemed editor decided that there was too much information about Mona and that we had to cut it down because, you know, a book can only be so long. Yes, I know. And it, they, they, you do have to lose some material, unfortunately, quite a bit of what I've written about Mona had to go. There just wasn't room for it. I do think there's a book on her. I do believe that she was the Beatles' first manager. Yes, it's very was. interesting that they had a female manager who did so much for them at a time when a woman just wasn't taken seriously doing that kind of thing. No. And she virtually relinquished her involvement and her influence to Brian Epstein. I think she acknowledged, even though Brian Epstein had no experience as a manager at all. He was making it up as he went along, and we all know he made so many mistakes himself, but he can't be blamed for that because everybody was, you know, testing the waters as they were going. Sure. But I think she recognised that she could only take it so far. Do you know, I, I would just like to add this, that this book is a departure for me. I have gone somewhere else with the writing of this. This is not how I normally write books. It's not a biography. But it's, it's a whole appraisal, and it's, if this doesn't sound too wet, it's from my heart. I wrote in a different way when I was writing this book. It wasn't my usual style, if you like. It came out in a different way, and it's, um, I, you, it sounds a bit mystical and weird to say you channel somebody, but I, I really kind of felt that this was coming from another plane. You know, and that can only be the influence of all the music because I obviously I'm a massive Beatles fan myself, but I immersed myself in this music. My daughter, my youngest, was at Exeter University at the time, and I was driving up and down quite frequently because she wasn't well, and I was playing the music in the car over and over and over to the point that if I were a musician, I reckon I could have played it all myself. <laughs> and I think I was very sort of um, just just drowned in John, it would be one way of saying it. I was drowned in him. I was trying to get to the core of him. And I really hope I got as close as anyone could. So appreciate your time. It's really lovely to speak to you. No. And um, I hope you enjoy the book. That's for the book, Who Killed Thanks. John Lennon. Thank you Take so much. Care. Talk to you again, I hope. Yeah, we will do. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye.